0: So this morning, we are in a very familiar text. As a matter of fact, last week, Ian started in John 2. John 2 through 4, we're going to be in for the next probably couple months. I'm guessing that these these three chapters are going to take us a couple of months. And they're, they're extremely familiar. I mean, some of them are the most famous passages in all of Scripture's. Ian taught about Jesus turning water into wine last week. This week we get the next story. And again, these are very familiar stories. And there's a danger that comes with familiar stories in the Bible. See, with these familiar stories, we've read them. If you've grown up in the church, maybe you haven't. Maybe this is all new to you. If so, I'm so glad you're here. Your presence is a gift to us. But for many of us, we've grown up in the church, and we've, we were taught these by a Sunday school teacher that we can't remember their names. Or maybe you can That's amazing. And from there on, these stories have just become familiar place, common to us. And this story that we're going to be looking in today, it's the source of this phrase that a particular kind of Christian today uses and throws around to just kind of Make sense of things, and maybe sometimes appropriately, sometimes inappropriately. But what happens with these familiar stories is we kind of just blow by them. We know all that's to know about them, kind of boring. What's next? Take me to the, the really fascinating passages, maybe the ones that I haven't seen enough of. But usually, with these familiar stories, what we're going to find this morning, I think, is that there's a lot beneath the surface, that our Sunday school teacher, God bless him, just didn't have the capacity for, the, the understanding of digging beneath the hood and looking at what scholarship has to say. So we're going to come to this, this, this story today that's been problematic, actually, for a lot of scholars. The story that we're in today could be fodder for atheists to say, look at, look at this, here's why the Bible isn't reliable. We're going to look under the hood of this thing, see if it is reliable, and also see if it has anything to teach us today for the millionth time. Last week, Ian talked really well about Jesus' miracle, the first miracle of turning water into wine. And it reminded me, we're in, if you don't know, we're in this series called The Word. In the the, the, the Word is the way that the, gospel, the writer of the Gospel of John t- chose to communicate who Jesus is. This divine logos, this divine word who was before all things and who through whom all things were created. This divine word who was in the beginning with God and he actually, this word, was God. John uses the, ter- the term logos or word to describe who this Jesus was before Jesus existed. That's a kind of a weird thing to think about. But Jesus was born in Bethlehem to this couple named Mary and Joseph who barely knew what they were doing in this very specific time, place, location. The word has existed for all eternity. John's word is Paul's Christ. The Christ, the anointed one, has existed for all eternity. John's saying, I want you to know who this Jesus is. He's not just this person who was born in Bethlehem, but he is preeminent over all things and through whom all things were created. Everything hinges on this person. And now the Christ, the Word, has become Jesus of Nazareth. God has taken on flesh, and that matters. So we, we started in John's prologue and then Shelley took us through jo- Jesus starting his ministry and, and then Ian took us into this story of Jesus turning water into wine and he showed, showed us, I love this point that he made last week that Jesus showed us that God always prefers relationship over what? You were paying attention. Was that George? Religion. Jesus always prefers relationship over religion and the way he, the way he fleshed that out was because these, these famous uh, barrels, basically, or these basins that Jesus said, hey, go fill up those basins with, with water, and then all of a sudden, boom, it turns into wine, and they're overflowing with the best wine of all time. We all, we all know the story. Those those containers were actually for religious cleansing ceremonies, that they would fill them with water, and then you would cleanse yourself. It was almost like a baptism. You would ceremonial, ceremonially wash yourself to, in order to become, to kind of be cleansed in order to come into the temple, into these holy spaces, and to to be acceptable to God. And Jesus profanes these vessels by filling them with wine. They could never be used again because they were filled with wine. And Jesus is making this statement that says, I prefer relationship in these people over and above your religious ceremonial cleansing. Now, that's what has sent shockwaves through the ancient Near through the ancient Jewish sensibilities. And what else Jesus, what John was saying when he said that Jesus took these vessels that were for ceremonial cleansing and filled them with wine, overflowing with the finest wine. Any, any Jewish person in, in in this world, in this culture, would have said, whoa, John is making a statement about who Jesus is. See, because any good Jew would have known that vessels overflowing filled to the brim with the finest wine means the messiah is here the wedding feast of yahweh has be- become began john was making a messianic symbol- symbolic statement about who jesus is there's all these little things beneath the surface that John's highlighting for us, that it's really hard to understand, but they're beautiful and profound and blow up our imaginations of what these stories actually were. And then we come this morning to John 2. And in John 2, we find this problematic story. Story that's been a problem for scholars. See, the content of it is not the problem. If you you know your Bible, you know what's next. Jesus clearing or cleansing the temple. Now, some of us really like this story, right? We like the Jesus that flips over tables and gets really pissed off. Some of you are angry that I use that word. We like the Jesus that flips over tables and upsets all, all, all the religious sensibilities. We like that Jesus. That's not the problem here. The problem isn't the, the content. The problem is the location of this story in the Gospel of John. See, if, if you've been here, you've heard me talking about the synoptic Gospels and how different the Gospel of John is from the other three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John are called the synoptic Gospels. It's just the Greek way of saying they're seen together. They're very similar. If you compare Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Luke, you'll find very similar stories. There's little, little inconsistencies, but exactly what you would imagine from three people with different different viewpoints and different uh, objectives and in purposes in telling that story they're very similar. John however is just way off in the woods. John's gospel is completely different. It's it feels different, it sounds different, his language is different, what he what John what the gospel of the author of the Gospel of John, what he he emphasizes is completely different. You don't see hardly any parables in the Gospel of John. But you see all these conversations. Conversations that Jesus had with people that you never expect. We're going to begin one of those next week. But the problem with this story in the Gospel of John is where it's located. Now, if you were here on Palm Sunday this year, you would have remembered that we went into this Jesus cleansing the temple narrative on Palm Sunday of this year, but in the book of Matthew. And if you were paying attention, if you were here and you were paying attention, you'd remember that this story of Jesus cleansing the temple was all the way at the end of the book of Matthew, Right? We have this triumphal entry narrative where Jesus and his disciples go to Jerusalem for Jesus' final week, his passion week. And he enters Jerusalem intentionally, confrontationally, riding a donkey with people, the people of Jerusalem singing his praises. And not even the people of Jerusalem, I'm sorry, I, I f- forgot that myself. The Galilean country hicks singing his praises, saying the Messiah is here, Hosanna to the Son of David. That right there caused a stir in Jerusalem. And then Jesus proceeded to just confronts the religious leadership in Jerusalem. First, His first action after the triumphal entry was cleansing the temple, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's after the triumphal entry, in the, in the very last week of Jesus' life. Then he goes and he curses a fig tree, which is another symbolic action, confrontational action. And then he gets into it with the religious leaders. They ask him some questions, trying to trip him up. He starts, begins, go, goes on the offensive. And then in Matthew, I think it's 25, just rips into him. But all three of the synoptics have this story of Jesus cleansing the temple at the end of their gospel narratives, at the end of Jesus' life. John has it here in the very beginning. Again, this could be fodder for some atheist to say, Told you. The gospels make no sense. Three of them have it at the end, this guy has it at the beginning. It's not reliable. So the question that scholars have been asking ever since is, why did John place this in the beginning of, the, of his gospel narrative? There's several possibilities. Are you ready to get Bible geeky with me? This is my kind of geekiness. Are you ready to dive in? All right. First, first potential reason that John put this in the beginning of, his, of the, his gospel narrative, the first one is that this is just another time that Jesus cleansed the temple, right? It says it's Jesus after he, he Turn the water into wine, and this tells me that God really did become a human because Jesus, in this wedding at Cana, just kind of does something that his mom is annoying him with, and he just kind of goes along with it. Like, that's, that's a human experience. Sorry, moms. <laughs> a parent. let's make it less gender-specific, God himself becomes a human being and just is like, fine, mom a human thing to do. But then after that, he goes down to Capernaum, where the gospel writers kind of hint that Jesus actually maybe owned a home and lived in Capernaum, down in Galilee. And then he goes back up to Jerusalem, John says in the Passover. So maybe, in the, so the, John says this is in Passover, Jesus cleanses the temple. Matthew, Mark, and Luke say at Passover, Jesus went up for the triumphal entry, cleansed the temple. So maybe this is just Jesus's Passover jam. When he comes to Jerusalem, like every good Jewish person would during the Passover, he just He just flips over tables, has a great time of just upsetting the religious leaders and making everybody angry, and then he leaves and is like, I'm out of here, have fun. Maybe that's it. Maybe this is just Jesus' Passover tradition. Scholars would say that's very unlikely. And the reason that that's very unlikely is that doing this kind of stuff running roughshod over the temple and flipping over tables and causing this huge ruckus in this most holy space in all of Judaism. That's the kind of thing that would get you killed. At the very least, it would get you in deep trouble with the religious religious rulers and authorities. It's not something that a person could do on a yearly basis or a couple of times. Most scholars agree this is a one-time deal. Because you do this, and you show up on the religious leader's radar in a massive way, and they probably will want to have you executed. Turns out that's what happened. So that's probably, it's probably unlikely. This, This is just another occurrence of Jesus cleansing the temple, right? Another possibility is John, the writer, the author of the Gospel of John, just got it wrong. It's just... Kind of bobbled in his ima- in his memory, or in his mind, or maybe he heard the story the wrong way, and he wrote it down in the beginning, and he just got it wrong. And the synoptic gospel writers are right, unlikely as well. See, by the time John wrote his gospel, the other three synoptics had all already been written for at least 20 years, up to 40 years before this. He was likely very familiar with the synoptic Gospels and these accounts and renderings of the story of Jesus. So it's highly unlikely that he just happened to get it wrong. Now what seems to be happening here, friends, is that John very intentionally put this story that happened at the end of Jesus' life right at the beginning of his Gospel narrative. First reason why this is the most likely scenario is that we get all all perplexed and our undies in a bunch when, when this is out of order. And we say, see, that's why the Bible isn't reliable. It's all out of whack. It's all out of order. But that's a very modern perspective. See, ancient, pe- ancient Jewish people, people in this ancient world, when they would encounter a biography, they really didn't care about this, the sequential order of, of the events. It, wasn't, they would, it wouldn't be something of like, hey, I know for a fact that happened totally at the end of Jesus' life. What are you doing here, John? They, it was a very different way that they, they encountered these biographical texts. And they didn't care so much about the sequential order like we do. That's a modern reading on an ancient text. We forget that these texts are 2,000 years old, written for and to and by a completely different people who saw things differently, like biography and what, what's important about writing about a person's life. Are you with me? So they didn't care as much as we do about that. Also, I would say th- the writer of the Gospel of John is definitely the most theological of all, three, all four Gospel writers. And when you're the most theological of the Gospel writers, it means that there's going to be more theological symbolism in said Gospel narrative. And so what many scholars think, and I think this, this makes sense to me, is that John's putting this story of Jesus cleansing the temple and confronting the religious leadership right at the beginning of his story, because what he's saying is this. The three synoptic Gospels said this is the beginning, this cleansing of the temple is the beginning of the Passion Week of Jesus. And John's saying, Jesus' whole three-year ministry was like one long Passion Week. Does that make sense? John is kind of saying, Jesus' ministry was like one long week. It was kind of like 2020. Do you know what I'm talking about? With all the shelter in place and partitioning and not all of our world just grinded, ground to a halt. I remember it was probably like August and some, I was with some friends and one person was like, what's the date today? And they're like, August 19th. And they're like, another friend said, no, 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 no. It's March 148th. And as soon as he said it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's what it feels like. We just had a seven-month march in 2020. Just time stood still. This is kind of what John's saying is happening here. He's taking, going all the way back to the, begin, to the beginning of the end for Jesus and saying basically this whole ministry of Jesus is Jesus walking to the cross. This whole ministry of Jesus, he's saying in this symbolic way, is Jesus confronting the religious hierarchy. This whole ministry of Jesus is not just one week, but it's three years of Jesus flipping tables upside down and turning our religious sensibilities backwards. So, now that we've got this order situation situated, maybe it's not settled for you. That's fine. Go consult the the scholars and see what you think. Let's get into the story. So we see Jesus changes water into wine, and he did that in Cana in Galilee, and it was the first of his signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. They stayed there for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Then the Jews responded to him, and it says Jews, but it's Jewish leaders responded to him. What sign can you show to us to prove your authority to do all this? You're about to be in big trouble, Bubba. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Makes no sense. They replied, it's it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? And then John puts in the commentary, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Imagine those times of trying to just make sense of this crucified and resurrected Jesus and ascended Jesus. How, and all of a sudden, remember when he did that and he said that? Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, Here's another little tidbit that's a little bit more than meets the eye of this passage. When I've encountered this passage, it seems like Jesus is genuinely ticked off at the money changers and the people, and the people selling stuff in the temple courts. This is called the court of the Gentiles here. It's the outer, outer area of the temple. There's these merchants. I've always taken this as Jesus getting really angry because people are making a profit in his house and they're, they're making the, a mockery out of the temple, right? Right? Most scholars would agree that what was happening here in the court of the Gentiles in the outer courts of the temple was just not that big of a deal. Most scholars would agree that the the exchange of money, that was a pretty normal thing. The reason that they were exchanging money, and again, this is review if you were here and paying attention and remember from, from the Palm Sunday, but that exchange of money was happening because the coins that normal Roman citizens, which is what these people would have been carrying around, carried carried an image of Caesar, right? Just like our coins. Certain presidents, they had Caesar. And on it, it said, Caesar, son of God. So instantly, these coins that the, the Roman citizens, these Jewish people were carrying around, were literally idolatrous. Because God in the Hebrew Scripture said, you shall not carry, have an engraven image of anyone, but they would have them right in their pockets. And so in order to not profane the temple, they would have to change their money from the Roman idolatrous money back into this Jewish currency that was not idolatrous so that they weren't in trouble, all right? So they're money-changing. This money-changing is not kind of this evil thing. It's actually trying to obey God's commands. And then the, the, the sale of these animals is not just some ancient farmer's market. <laughs> They're doing a service for the Jewish people. First, you exchange your money so you're not bringing idolatrous money into the temple. Then, you're purchasing money, to, or animals, to sacrifice to God, right? They're good Jewish people. They came to the temple during Passover to sacrifice, to atone for their sins. In the... the the more poor you were, that the, you had, pit, you would buy pigeons or doves to sacrifice. The more money you had, you would buy those the sheep and the and the cattle because you really then atone for your sins. You know what I'm talking about. So this is not, this is not just Jesus getting angry that they've turned the temple into Mayfair Mall. This is very normal stuff. Scholars are in agreement about this. Nothing inherently, seemingly sinful going on. So what? what's Jesus' problem? What's the issue? Again, John seems to be bringing in some symbolism here, and Jesus seems to be bringing in some symbolism. Most scholars that I think are on the right track, seem to be on the right track, seem to agree that this is not a statement against the merchants and the money changers. This is a symbolic action against the temple itself, the temple and its leadership. This is Jesus not confronting this silly money changers and, and people selling sacrificial animals. This is Jesus disrupting the whole religious system. This is Jesus judging, the whole religious system that he was born into, that he, he if we believe John, that J- Jesus is the, the Christ, the Word of God who was and is and is to come, this is his own system that he's judging, that he's saying, no longer does this have any merits. No longer do you come to this place. No longer do you travel to this Mecca once or twice or three times a year to come to the temple. No longer is this temple the end-all, be-all. See, I am the place where you find the presence of God. I am the new Mecca. I'm the one you pilgrimage to in order to find and receive who God is. And Jesus is confronting very intentionally the religious leaders in a way that he knows is going to get him killed. Most scholars believe that Jesus is acting symbolically here, cleansing the temple and getting, causing a fight with the religious leadership, turning over the tables on the religious leadership. That's where you could make a metaphor right there. So do we feel like we're all on the same page regarding this story? More or less? where it is located, why it's located there, what Jesus was and wasn't doing. Jesus was confronting the religious leadership, not just the, the merchants. Jesus was acting symbolically and confronting the religious leadership and, and intentionally getting into a fight with them and opposing the religious leadership in Jerusalem. Now, if, you, if the word Enneagram means anything to you, I'm an Enneagram 8. Enneagram is just this kind of way of assessing your personality. It's kind of like the, um, what is it, Myers-Hicks or something like that? I don't. Thank you. It's a more Christian, like hippie Christian thing to, to assess. I think it's great. I think it's great. To, I make fun of it, but it's great. I am an Enneagram 8, which just means that I like, I'm one of those obnoxious people that likes to challenge everything all the time. Somebody said Amen. I'm one of those obnoxious people that just loves to challenge people, which means we Enneagram 8s love texts like this. Because I got some friggin' tables to turn over, people. I got some things to challenge. I've been chomping at the bit to preach this text. And when I get to thinking like that, it's a really good idea for me to push the pause button Take a few deep breaths, and do what Jesus taught me to do in another gospel account that we went through earlier this year. Anybody have any guesses as to what what religious practice that Jesus instituted that I need to do when I come to a text like this, and I want to flip over all the other tables? Anybody have any idea? Montavious for the wind. Matthew 7, Jesus is concluding his epic, epic sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus said something to the effect of, when you're tempted to judge your brother or your sister, point out the speck of dust in their eye, here's what to do. First, pause, take a step back. Look in the mirror and be like, oh, 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 oh. they got a speck in there. I got a friggin' plank, plank in my eye. I got a board stick. In other words, judge yourself first. Look at yourself before you point the finger. Before it, when, you, when you have the tendency, and man, us religious people are good at this, dirty, rotten sinners everywhere, surrounded by them. The older you get to, I can tell you, I've, I'm going to be a grumpy old man <laughs> I'm fighting it. I'm fighting it. But we do this really well, don't we? That's why we're on social media, to do this. It's what our whole world's about. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to help you. And Jesus' hand comes in and goes, here, here, you're almost there? Oh, there you go. See, here's when I want to flip over tables about religious systems that are broken and idolatrous and I want to. My first question needs to be, what tables does Jesus want to flip over in my world? Where have I gotten it so wrong? What am I blind to? What have I let myself be blinded by? See, there's all sorts of things that blind me. And mostly it's, Literally, like, existing in judgment on the people who think differently than me. And not just anybody, I have a hard time with Christians who think differently than me. I know I'm the only one. I have a real hard time with Christians who think differently than me. I have a hard time with people on the other end of the political spectrum. Again, I know I'm unique in this, just hear me out. And I love to point the finger at them. I love to t- think and dream about ways to flipping to flip the tables on them. And that's when it's my job to look at myself, say, where have I gotten blind? Where have I? There are areas where I literally see not a person, but an ideology. There are movements in the church that I only see the ugliness in when there's beauty to be found. I do it all the time. I invite judgment on myself. So my first question, our first question always needs to be, when we're feeling that righteous anger and judgment, just pause. Take a deep breath. Maybe many of them. And just ask Jesus, what tables are you wanting to turn over in my religious world? Once we've done that, then we can begin looking, hopefully with some mercy in our hearts because we know there's some tables that Jesus wants to flip over in my world, in my system. And he's dealt mercifully with me. But now I can go look. And we can point things out like Jesus did. And it's usually, it's usually in not on the ground level so much, but on the higher level, on the religious leadership kind of level, on the people like me level, and more important people than me. And there are some tables to be turned over in the church right now, friends. Just this week, I try. social media is just unbelievable. I'm mostly off of Facebook. So I tried to, like, create this little silo in Twitter. I know it's an echo chamber. Cut me some slack. (laughs) I don't want to be obsessively, compulsively hating people, so I I don't want to see things that drive me nuts. I saw on Twitter this week a pastor I really enjoy retweeted this so-called pastor who literally said that this political leader is America's Messiah. Now, that, friends, is very simply heresy and blasphemy, and I don't use those words very flippantly. I think Jesus wants to turn over the tables on this idea of Christian nationalism that once was kind of hidden and where you use coded words, but now is just right out there in the open. Talking about the ways that Jesus wants to change our world is through a political party, whether it's the left or the right, run from that kind of ideology. Jesus is going to flip those tables. I think Jesus wants to flip the tables of American Christianity that has turned spirituality in following Jesus into entertainment industry. I think Jesus wants to flip the tables on consumeristic Christianity, where we come to a place like this or bigger and better because it's awesome and we, we feel really good about ourselves when we're there and it means nothing for the rest of our weeks. I think Jesus wants to flip the table on that kind of consumeristic Christianity that does nothing to change our lives. As a matter of fact, let me read the last verse for you here, the last couple of verses. After the disciple John said the disciples were reflecting after Jesus was raised from the dead, connecting the dots, making sense, saying, "Oh yeah, I think he really was the son of God. He was a Messiah." He, he is God. It says in verse 23, "Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name." Yes! Mission accomplished. But Jesus was not, would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, nor, for he knew what was in each person. See, many people believed him. John said, but that didn't really matter to Jesus so much. That's interesting. Seems to be what John's getting at here is Jesus isn't looking for believers, even though that we talk about that word all the time. Are you a believer? You're a believer, right? You're a believer? John's saying, who cares? Who cares what you say you believe? See, Jesus is interested in disciples. Jesus isn't interested in our lip service. He's interested in our feet and how we live our lives, how we walk out our beliefs. That's interesting to Jesus, it seems like. Consumer Christianity, I don't think Jesus would get down with the whole megachurch movement, to be honest with you. I don't think Jesus would be impressed by smoke machines and wardrobe changes during Christmas services. Jesus wants to flip some tables in our religious worlds, and he wants to start with mine. And then once I've dealt with myself and let the Holy Spirit deal with me graciously and mercifully, then he's calling me to lift my gaze and for us to lift our gaze around and do the same thing in the world around us, graciously, mercifully, lovingly, pointing out that that is not the way of Jesus. And instead of proclaiming it, maybe even sometimes, we model the way of Jesus and embody it. And so this is where we come to the table, friends, this morning. We do this every week as a reminder that we're not here because of me and my preaching. We're not here because of the great worship. We're not here because of this awesome room. We're not here because this is what we think we should do. We're here because we're centered around Jesus, because this man named Jesus is my true north. I get distracted, and I forget what this is all about. Sunday mornings, I try to—I do the same thing you do. Oh, there's not many people here this morning. I think that's what this is about: filling up this room, adding another service. This, this time, we're reminded in this Eucharist that we're going to share together to end our time is about Jesus. It's for Jesus. It's because of Jesus. And the reason that we have hope, the reason that we can can look in ourselves in an honest way, the reason that we can look at the church in an honest way is because we have the ideal right here. We have the model. We have fullness and wholeness in a person, and His name is Jesus. And so that's why we're going to come up the middle aisle here and go down the side aisles after we've received these elements. We're going to partake in the Lord's table together eat the bread. You got to get through the annoying first layer of plastic, this COVID way of stupidity doing communion. But then once you've eaten the bread, let's drink the cup together. Hold on until I come back up, all right? Forrest, would you serve with me? Forrest will be over there. Come up when you're ready, friends.